Hey guys, how's it going? So I'm back, it's Scott here with another episode of the SBL podcast and today we've got the one and only, one of my favourite bass players in the world is Evan Marion. I'm so stoked that we've got him on the uh, the podcast today, but also we got to hang out with Evan uh, a few weeks ago in uh, in Brooklyn, New York, because we were actually creating a a course with Evan um, for the membership at scottsbassessons.com, along with a host of other fantastic bass players as well. Evan was there, he brought his trio down, and his course was focusing on improvisation and interaction within a band. It's absolutely fantastic, and the guys that he had down with him were absolutely phenomenal players as well, as you would expect. Uh, but we've also had like Adam Neely's been in, uh, Rufus Philpot, Jonathan Marin, uh, Rich Brown. Uh, we've, had, we've had a ton of crazy bass players over with us in New York, creating content for the membership at scottsbassessons.com because for me 2017 is really about well really striving to you know we've created something amazing with Scott's Bass Essence already but I really want to push that to the next level and get as many of you know people that blow me away involved in Scott's Bass Essence it's completely selfish I'm, I just want to work with the best bass players in the world so I'm doing it for myself, but um, at the same time, everybody that's a member of Scott's Bass Lessons benefits as well. So it's a, it's, it's a win-win situation. Anyway, before we get into uh, this week's podcast, um, I also want to uh, just give, give a shout out to a couple of things. First of all, if you're listening to, um, to this, oh, and excuse my sniffling away, I've got a really super bad cold. But anyway, so if you're listening to this on iTunes, I'll send you all of my base love if you subscribe and leave a review on there as it helps me get the word out about these interviews and what we're trying to do with Scott's Bass Lessons. Um, which is essentially take a ton of people's bass playing to the next level and do it on a global scale like it's never been done before. And if you're listening to this anywhere other than scottsbasslessons.com, make sure you shoot over to the website and check out the show notes for this episode as I've put some killer videos of Evan in there as well so you can check them out. You've got to check out Evan playing. He is ridiculous. Like seriously guys, you've got to check him out. Um, I've also put links to his band camp and stuff like that from there. So go check it out and give Evan a ton of support and a ton of love because he, he absolutely he deserves it. He's a killer player and he's just a super down-to-earth nice bloke as well. Like, super cool guy. Um, if you're completely free to Scott's Bass Lessons, as in you've never heard of me before, you don't know who Scott Devine is, you don't know what Scott's Bass Lessons is, go to scottsbasslessons.com forward slash toolkit and there you can download some amazing, cool, free resources like a free buyer's guide um, where I sit down with an amazing luthier called Chris May of Overwater Bases and he takes us through what we should what we should be looking out for on our next bass buy. I've got a base uh, baseline creation guide, which is a 40-minute workshop, video workshop. I've got the tone tools um, seminar that I did. Like, there's a ton of cool stuff on there. Basically, go to scottsbassessons.com forward slash toolkit and you can get access to that completely free. And also, remember, if you're an Academy member, you can also watch the entire video of this interview as well. And if you're not already an Academy member, guys, go check it out at scottsbassessons.com. In a nutshell, it's the number one online bass school in the world, we, I teach there along with a host of amazing other faculty members, the best 
the best base educators in a world in the world we've got step-by-step self-study courses that you can do in your own time we've got live seminars every single week so you can jump on with some of the best base educators on the planet in real time and ask them questions via the live chat um, we've also got a huge archive of along with all the course material we've also got an archive of over a hundred hours of um, past seminars that we've done with guys like Gary Willis um, we've got Kayakart coming up we've had Sean Hurley from the John Mayer band in there we've had Divinity Rocks we've had, you know, all of these guys are you know involved in Scott's Bass Lessons thankfully because they're awesome and uh, and I'd love for you to come and check out the the academy and see if you know see if it's for you so because I want you to come and you know check it out we've also got a completely free 14 day free trial as well so you can take the entire thing for a test drive just to see if it's for you and then you know and then if you are and if you and if you do find it's for you you can stay on and be a member if you don't find it's for you you can simply cancel your account within 14 days and you will be charged nothing and you don't even need to contact us to be able to do that there's a simple button inside your dashboard when you log in and just click cancel account and it's done for you now without further ado i'm going to hand over to nick wells our editor here at scottspacelessness.com and he will be interviewing evan marion for you so strap on your seatbelts. <laughs> strap on your seatbelts. come on i've got to do get i've got I can do better than that. So, without further ado, uh, here's Nick and Evan. Take it easy. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the SBL podcast. We're here today with Evan Marion, all the way from Brooklyn. Just want to say thanks, Evan, for uh, taking some time out to talk to us today. Um, oh, thank you, Nick. We were just talking just then about how you like to approach rhythm section with just bass and drums a lot of the time and, just, and mm-hmm. trying to cover a lot more ground on the bass than a lot of other players usually would. Um, can you tell us about how that idea came around and some of the earlier influences on that? Sure. I mean, it it all kind of started when I was in high school and I started discovering square pushers music and looking through the internet of, uh, you know, interviews and, and things like that. And he'd always mention how he was practicing the computers or he would create his own backing tracks to practice to. And so I kind of just, I started just trying to do that myself and just got kind of used to playing only with a computer, you know, just based in computer. And uh, I started programming tracks that were, I, I, I generally, whenever I compose music, I start with the harmony first and then I kind of build the melody on top of it. And I, I never really think about drums until the very end anyway. And so a lot of my tracks are just these like, you know, drumless tunes and uh it was just kind of uh by accident like not really by accident but i started um uh working with dana hawkins here in new york uh, he lived a couple blocks away from me and i kind of knew of him through my berkeley friends and uh got introduced to him and we jammed i think the first time we played was he was on bass because he's an amazing he's an incredible bass player yeah him absolutely ridiculous monstrous bass player so we, we jammed on bass you know yeah he's 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 really uh he's something and just ridiculously talented you know uh, on drums and bass and guitar and just any instrument that he touches 
But uh, so he lived a couple blocks away, and I just started bringing my laptop over and plugging it directly into like a PA system and just playing the tracks down. And even without a click track, Dana was like, was right there with it. And I kind of, I kind of knew then that his grid or his sense of time is exactly the way I would want uh, to program something, you know, like very much like on a 16th note kind of grid or, but then also like his triplet, you know, all the, all the stuff he does really great. Uh, I wanted that <laughs> underneath. Like that's like the stuff that I wanted to program. So I started bringing tracks to him and he started just ripping it over him. And it was just, I mean, Matt, it was, it was, awesome that's exactly what i heard in my my head and uh so i just started practicing with them you know like we we just started uh i would i I would write all the the music basically in in reason and uh just start you know jamming with them on it like setting up loops you know like 10 minute long like loops and just like letting them go to town and just kind of like holding it down behind them and uh that was always a, a cool, fun challenge, but I, there's stuff in my tracks that always kind of give me a sense of a, like a, a grid. You know, there's a lot of arpeggio stuff or like, uh, uh, arpeggiated like melodies or just like, um, that's kind of like a consistent thing in my tracks. And that's almost just because, uh, if I don't have a click track live, I have like a musical reference, you know, there's something that I can hone in on in the music that will kind of keep me, you know, uh, graded, you know, especially when he starts really time stretching things and uh, compressing and expanding time. <laughs> There's something in the track that I know that I can latch onto and uh, help me, uh, you know, perform it. <laughs> yeah. And do you think the live element is still as important when it's so heavily affected? I think so. Yeah, I think definitely like it's still a, uh, like it, it kind of when I play live to tracks now, or even when I practice to tracks here, I I, I don't like to have the click anymore. Especially here at home, if I'm practicing this stuff, I try to. Maybe that's why I kind of always end up having an element that ends up being that gridded thing. I try to make it more musical. The click seems like a very uh, you know stagnant kind of thing. Even like live, I think Dana would just uh, just use the monitor and not even use the in ears for a lot of the stuff because he, he knew too that there's a lot of um, elements in my music that can kind of just keep them on point uh, time-wise, you know, reference-wise, I guess. Yeah. And can you tell us about some of the effects that you use? Because I've seen in some of your videos some crazy sounds coming out. Oh, man, yeah. It's, uh, I mean, the, the <clears throat> ugh, my throat. <clears> throat. There we go. Um, I would say the main effect that I use pretty much a hundred percent of the time that like I bring to every gig is the boss OC2 pedal. I use that for basically everything. That's always first in my chain. And then, uh, usually the next pedal in the chain is kind of the wild card that ends up being a synth pedal of some sort. Um, and the way I like to chain them together is the boss OC2 pushing into like a synth pedal. So I always feel like that that kind of overdrives it and pushes it even more to have the OC2 and a synth pedal. Like I've been using uh, Source Audio pedals for uh, synth, uh, like the hot. They make this thing called the Hot Hand, which is this wireless ring 
that goes on your thumb or it really you can put it on any finger you know anything that i've seen people put them on the headstocks of their instruments so that you can have the uh you can have it mapped maybe to like the pitch and then like when you bring your instrument down it actually drops the pitch it's like a visual you know it's a very visual effect which is kind of but it's also very nice to just have like a instead of your feet controlling something your hand controlling this you know something the uh, you can do a lot of stuff a lot faster. You can do you know triplets faster. You can get into sixteenth notes with just your hand. You can't really do that with your feet. You know it's kind of kind of hard. I've tried. I used to have a. I still do have a Boss synth pedal. I think it's the SYB one, and that has an expression pedal output that controls the filter frequency. And I remember trying to like, you know, do triplets or fast like. 16th notes with just my foot and i was like oh no this is just you know for like the dubstep stuff sure. like a, it was like it was almost Im impossible to try to do that with my foot although i was I, mean, I was getting pretty good at it you know but it was like it just wasn't quite there so when i <clears throat> oh man i'm losing my voice uh when i heard a source audio and i saw the hot hand i saw this bassist uh nathan navarro use it on on youtube and He's just a, he was such a huge influence. Like I, I had to figure out, there's no interviews with him or there's nothing really out there yet on what, he, like how he was using the stuff. All I knew that was that he was using source audio pedals. And I was like, man, okay, source audio. All right, hot hand. Okay. And then when I got it, I was like, how do I use this? <laughs> like, how do I, and it was like hours of me trying to like figure out how to, because at first, uh, you had to connect it to a MIDI to it. They made this pedal that was specifically for uh, connecting it to an expression pedal output. And it was this big expensive thing that now is obsolete because they make it in like a, they just make it as a part of the hot hand package now. They like really uh, consolidated it into like a smaller thing. But it used to be this huge box and uh, I didn't really know what TRS cables were, like trying to connect like normal instrument cables to the expression pedal outputs. I was like, why isn't this working? You know, Google, you know, Google searches later being like, oh, OK, I need to buy this. <laughs> need to wait a couple days for it to come in. And it's like a big, long process to figure out how to use the hot hand. Then like practicing with it is a whole other thing. That was like uh, something that I had to learn to control, you know, uh, and even at first, I had the Mark Bass synth pedal going into a sort of... I had a couple different synth setups. Uh, for the video Soulseek, I used a source audio filter, but before the filter, I uh, had a Mark Bass synth pedal. So that uh, the, the filter would come after. It would control how much the synth is opening and closing, basically. But only because the synth is going on full 100%, and I put the filter after the pedal... And kind of like as a global shape but i remember it doesn't have a gate on it and it used to just go totally crazy and wild and i think uh for soul seek it, it, it by like take seven i was like used to i was like all right this is what i need to do i had to kind of keep it uh restrained a little bit because it could just it was a it's a whole other it's a you know you're using your hands and i was tapping the instrument too and like having the filter open up down and now i have I realized, like, a couple years later when I did the Eldridge, to have the filter go up on this hand. Like, I rewired the hot hand to make it go the opposite direction. I realized I could still then pluck my 
note and then raise the filter up instead of hammering it on and bringing it down. It was all, it's, it was a whole long, you know, figure it out myself kind of process. And, uh, yeah. So that's the wild card section of my pedal board. That that's usually where the synth thing. And right now I'm, I'm using the boss synth again, uh, instead of the source audio, I think it's the Manta filter. The Manta filter has distortion and it gets pretty grimy and, uh, distorted and like, you know, it's nasty sounding, but, uh, like recently I did a video shoot where I was using the hot hand and the song just kind of didn't need that like grimy dubstepy, you know, distorted. Like I, I wanted a more pure filter opening closing. So I'm using the boss SYB to open it. And yeah, yeah it's just a better pure synth sound, you know? Uh, and then, and then after that it's reverb. I usually put reverb at the very end of the, the chain. Cause it's kind of nice as like a global thing to just kind of have, reverb you know kind of makes it uh especially reverb with the oc2 is pretty sounds like you're playing in like a hall you know like a, a big law like a large cavern and i kind of like that sub feeling of like you know huge like i want to be able to put my sound in like a space that's like as big as like a huge cathedral you know and just vibe off that and yeah so really that, those are like the that's kind of that's my main pedal chain, you know, usually. Uh, although I'm, I'm thinking about adding a volume before the reverb, because it'd be nice to kind of get those swells happening without having to wear out my volume knob, which I've been doing on all my all my bases now need new volume knobs, because <laughs> I've been doing too many swells, and it's like, it, it, they're starting. Especially, there's like a, a couple of them are dirty, so like when I go to swell it, it's like this nice crackle that feeds into the reverb and it's like, Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. A lightning bolt in a cathedral. It sounds, <laughs> it's great. With your pedals, do you think you can be inspired in the same way that you can be inspired to write when you pick up a certain bass when you don't, oh, yeah. you don't ever really know what kind of sound you're going to get with when you're mixing and matching different pedals, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how, yeah. how big an, an influence are these pedals on your writing? Oh man, they shape, they shaped every, well, even for Scott's, uh, when we were doing the performance part of Scott for the shoot with Scott, um, the first song, uh, I started playing with the reverb before we started like actually rolling and that kind of determined the direction of the first thing that we were going to improvise and play, uh, it totally put us all in a space, right? Like, uh, re there's just certain things you can't do with reverb up you know <laughs> like it forces me almost to uh well it definitely forces me to play uh less right because otherwise it just gets too uh caught up in the reverb it gets too muddy it gets too uh it gets to be too much so it definitely puts me in a space right kind of like a limited space where uh a good limited space because <laughs> like having a reverb a lush reverb kind of sound it makes me want to play it wants me to be able to hear that note trail and the reverb. Make, it makes me want to give myself the space, you know? Uh, and same with the limitations of the OC2. The OC2 is monophonic, so I can't do chords with it. So I know that if whenever I kick on that pedal, yeah, there's certain, like, you know, technological limitations or sound limitations that kind of just determine, you know, the direction of, of how I play, you know, how I uh, approach things. 
But Reverb's the biggest one, I think. Reverb's definitely like the the one that just makes me go, ah, I'm in this space now. I don't have to like, uh, especially chords. You know, chords are the biggest one. It allows me to breathe. <laughs> How about your bass? Can we have another look at that? Sure, absolutely. Well, so there's this one. Uh, this is the Ken Smith, and I've had this for a couple years now. Um, really, really fast, easy to play. I had it, um, when it was made, I had him ramp the string spacing down to 16 millimeter. So it's, it's really tight string spacing, like ridiculously tight string spacing. So it's not really good for like, I mean, I'm not much of a slapper anyway, but it's almost really like impossible to slap on it's just really it's like tight like almost like a guitar can you hold it up for us can we have a sure let's have a look totally yeah yeah it's lovely it's really it's it's been i put it away for a little while and then i've just now recently started playing it again and i'm i missed how easy (laughs) it is to like uh to play chords on it and uh, it's not not only just like uh, playing lines, you know, like having tight string spacing is nice to kind of get my, uh, to play intervallically around the neck that it kind of makes it more comfortable but like chord wise, like I feel like I can actually grab more uh, I can, yeah, end up playing things that like on my callow hill it's 19 millimeter string spacing and those three millimeters make a huge difference or is it three yeah it makes such a huge difference and like the way i grab chords on the callow hill it feels like they're miles apart from each other you know like it feels way bigger and and it's that bass i didn't really have designed to play like the ken smith i kind of did want something that was bigger more like a fender you know more old school it's passive uh where is it it's somewhere back here um it's in this case i believe they're basically both designed completely different but both very very useful for uh i guess different things you know right this is the calipel uh the back pickup I've been using the back pickup when I solo on this bass, but but lately, it's funny, like, months down the road, I'll kind of figure out, I won't figure out what sounds that good on the instrument right away. <laughs> it takes me, like, you know, maybe a couple years to even get used to uh, the instrument itself, and then I'll start actually flipping through the pickups and actually, like, because I'll try to always get the touch and sound from my left hand or my right hand. That's kind of... That's where it all starts anyway. And that's where I kind of end up knowing, that's what I end up focusing on rather than the pickups or like, I just kind of flip back between the the front pickups and the back pickup now. And I'm just now discovering that these front pickups sound really, really ridiculously good. (laughs) Because my sound lies more in a back pickup thing anyway. And so when I, when I solo now, like uh, for these new videos, I only use the front pickups which I thought are kind of nice sounding for chords. It's just a different thing, really. And uh, and it's passive, you know, it's really lightweight. I think it's like four pounds or something. It's like a, it's like a toy, you know. Uh, but I love it. I mean, it's it's just built for different things, you know. 
Like, I, I'm probably not going to play much Fusion on this anymore. It's just, it's pretty, it's, it's a lot harder to play that style on this instrument. Uh, so, like, for the gigs coming up with, with Alan, I'll probably be using the Ken Smith. Um, actually, definitely will be using the Ken Smith because it's just, I, it's just, it's built for that sure. kind of music, you know? You mentioned there about going to the back pickup for your sound. Sure. Yeah. When did you realize that you had a sound or that you even wanted a sound? <laughs> I still don't think I do have a sound, which is funny. I, I mean, I just have, I think it's just, it's just determined by, yeah, just the back pickup. I'm, I always kind of just think of it as, oh, it's just a back pickup sound, you know? I, I think, uh, I, I, it's funny. Like, I just prefer, well, well okay. So it all started from, like, in high school watching, again, YouTube. Actually, it was before YouTube, really. It was like I would used to rip Jocko videos from, like, SoulSeek, this internet file sharing program. I used to find Jocko live videos and just watch him play on the back pickup. Same with Square Pusher. I used to find a couple live videos of him, and he's also playing on the back pickup. So just visually, I went, that's... I had a reference, you know? It's like, that's that's how you get that sound. That's how you get that Jocko sound. It's a Jocko's playing on the back pickup. It's like, okay, cool. And then when I got the Ken Smith, it's an 18-volt preamp, and when I started playing on the back pickup, I was like, oh, holy... Like, it became a lot thinner than what I'm used to. So I end up having the knobs maxed out all the way. Like each knob, bass, treble, mid is just a hundred percent turned up. Uh, and then really, uh, I mean, I try, I try to play more on the, uh, I'm right on top of the pickup. Also, I think he moved the bridge up on this one. I'm trying to see. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, uh, that's probably why it also feels different on the Callow Hill, is that the bridge spacing between the pickup and the bridge, like I'm playing right on the pickup here, but then on the Callow Hill I noticed I'm actually playing maybe a little bit more behind it to get a tighter sound, uh, rather than in this middle area. I almost have to play right on the pickup in order to kind of get that like focused, uh, focused sound, you know? Like right on top of it. So you're, yeah. you're about to go out with Alan Holdsworth, right, for some shows. Yeah, which mm-hmm. is a pretty heavy gig. Yeah, it's it's gonna. I mean, it's it's music that I uh, grew up listening to. Still listen. I mean, like even before uh, uh, before I got the call to do it, I've been on like a big Alan kick the past year. I've been like diving deep into like and creating, you know creating my own best of Alan Holdsworth Spotify playlist, you know, and, and, uh, and just like, you know, I've been on, I've been on a huge, so when the, when the, when I got called for it, I was like, oh, this is going to be just great. Cause, uh, not only do I really not need much sheet music for it, cause I already know how the tunes go in my head, but, uh, I already have the, the, the harmonic intent of things in my head, like the solo sections. And, and it's like, I already have these things that are, uh, that I can sing in my head as I'm playing the tune, uh, which always makes it a lot easier for me to improvise and, you know, be more fluid over the, over the, the course of a tune, you know, uh, it's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to it. This is, it's just like my favorite music ever. <laughs> really. So are you going to do anything else to prepare or are you just looking forward to 
diving in and seeing what happens? I'm pretty much, uh, I mean, I was talking to Virgil about it and about like the mu- like what music we would do, any you know, deep cuts. And right now there's not a specific game plan. He was like, he's like, I think you already know most of the music. You know, it's like a lot of the, the, the hits. It's like looking glass and letters marquee and water in the brain. And, uh, I do have some requests and I'm going to talk to Alan about it and see if we can do like some deeper cuts. (laughs) Um, like, like there's this tune Sphere of Innocence, which is really, really great. And we have Steve Hunt, who is Alan's keyboardist uh, in, like, the legendary band, you know, back in the late 80s and early 90s with Gary Husband and Scully. And uh, I think since we have keyboards, we can, you know, that opens up the tune palette a lot more. So hopefully we can do some tunes that are, like, you know, that has, has you know, a lot of, like, the tunes off of uh, Adivacron, like... Maybe even that that tune would be a lot of fun to play, and yeah, we'll see. But we'll see. Have to I'll have to see how comfortable Alan is playing some, you know, some deeper cuts. I don't know. He might just be like, "No, that tune sucks." Like, <laughs> yeah. like you never you never know. I think the tune's really great, but you know, up, the composer's story is a is always a different perspective and a point of view. He might just be like, "No, no, that's you know." People have come up to me and been like, oh, that tune's really killing. I'm like, really? Like, yeah, I guess it's like, that was not my favorite, you know? <laughs> like, it, it's it's interesting. Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. But uh, I'm really looking forward to it. It's just, it's really going to be like a dream come true, you know? And have you been working on your, on your solo chops? Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think, like, what, the tunes that I have been practicing soloing over probably aren't going to be the tunes that we're going to play or like that I'm going to play a bass solo on. <laughs> uh, but to just have it prepared, that might be kind of cool. Like I, I've been, I've been working on my own version of uh, looking glass for like maybe a couple months now that I had uh, originally the intent was to get either Virgil to play drums or I was thinking Dana again to play drums. I'm, I'm also working on a new batch of music that uh, I think is going to be, good for me and Dana's thing. I think that will be actually, you know, it will, it, I, I'm, I'm very much like in the realm of, uh, does this, does this feel right? You know, like, does this feel right to bring, like, does it feel, you know, and in the past it's all, it's always kind of been that way, but like these newer tunes that I've been writing, I, I felt needed a different perspective or, or something, you know, needed something else. So, uh, it's going to be nice to, like, actually work on, well, like, really to just bring what I already know to the table. You know, I've already been practicing this these tunes, and uh, it's interesting. Like, so Alan doesn't really have sheet music, or, or really, I don't think he's ever written down his music. I'm not sure, actually. Maybe he has, but I haven't gotten any music. So everything's going to be, you know, from memory for the, for the most part, and just kind of... Uh, you know, maybe some self-made charts, you know, in, in preparation. And, uh, but yeah, I've been, you know, working on my own version of Looking Glass that I've been, like, you know, working a solo out over. And uh, I think my version has, like, four choruses of bass solo or something. It's, like, something <laughs> ridiculous. It's way too long, and I'm going to cut it down because there's nothing like, uh, there's nothing like stretching, you know, like ha- having a solo section that really pushes you and, like, 
I think I did that on on Sweatin'. I made my solo section pretty lengthy because I was like, you know, it pushes me to like stretch. You know, it pushes me to actually be more improvisational rather than compositional. So lately, I've been having my solo sections be like sixteen bars, like something really short. Because then I think compositionally, it's like the bass solo effect is there. That, you know, I, I have more of a shape that I can uh, go for. All I mean, again, it's all trying to be more compositional with uh, my soloing. And I, I think I talk about that with Scott a lot, too. It's like uh, how to, you know, start your solos off compositionally. Like once you kind of stumble upon that thing that makes it, like start with a strong melodic statement, you know. Uh, especially recording solos like uh, in the recording studio you kind of want to make your masterpiece right that's kind of like what the studio is for so to to improvise a solo it's 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 good but then you should also make that composition you bring that compositional thing to your soloing so like i don't know like i have a thing that i'm working out over water on the brain I have like a couple like melodic statements that are that are pre-composed in my head that I know work over the D flat major chord, you know, like using like a Lydian thing where I'm using, you know, a lot of G natural in it. And uh, there, there's certain things that I'm like working out in my head to approach my soloing more compositionally on the Allen tunes, you know. But at the same time, I do want to stretch because I know Allen's probably going to want to like make me stretch, you know. So, like, ten choruses of water on the brain. Oh, awesome. How, you know, like, how do I pace myself? You know, I have, it's about reminding myself uh, to be more, to pace, you know, pace my solos, pace the, uh, you know, again, this kind of, you know, affects kind of bring to put, you know, using reverb to put me in that space at first, to bring a different flavor to a chorus or uh, uh you know constantly to try to like change and evolve the sound as it goes but at the same time still i still like the default way of building a solo which is like starting small and then letting it grow and get big that's hard to, to shape over the course of like six choruses you know so it's, it's kind of nice to use effects to maybe bring it back down but at the same time give a different flavor another starting point to like ramp up and play more notes or whatever it isn't really that's why i'm also i'm trying to think if i should approach this gig from a very uh um like not a lot of notes you know there's gonna be a lot of notes coming from everyone on stage and usually my first reaction to that is to play less to be the thing that's like the the big whole note like you know the bigness you know (laughs) the bigness (laughs) but yeah that's the be- that's my that's my like American that's my Illinois way of saying like space you know sure yeah <laughs> to give myself like a, like to because Virgil's an incredible drummer and man his time we just did a version of Letters and Marquee to, together just for fun and uh, Steve hunts on it as well that's kind of what led to the to the me getting the gig too is because we just started experimenting with all these Allen tunes just on our own just for fun you know and it ended up being really really fun and cool for me to like uh layer like i i I do all the guitar parts uh, on our version so i was like learning all the chords and like uh you know multi-tracking my bass and making it sound really fat and big and and uh 
that was, I mean, that's also another way to approach the gig too, but it, I, I'm just now kind of getting hip to actually tuning into Jimmy Johnson's bass playing on these tracks. And it's, it's really, it's kind of intimidating. And, and so that's why I'm also like, I don't know, I should really just, you know, play along, practice along, not take into account too much what he's doing. Although he is the man <laughs> and he sounds ridiculous on everything, but there's also like the, to not get intimidated by it, I have to kind of approach it like it's my own thing, like what I would do over this, you know. And uh, I come from so many different backgrounds that it's going to be interesting to see how it all kind of comes together and how it actually does sound. But, you know, I'm, I'm planning on, I'm sure Virgil records everything, so hopefully, hopefully we'll record the gigs and hopefully it'll be shared, you know, with the world and uh, I'm sure everyone will just kind of find out then <laughs> what it sounds, <laughs> yeah. what, what what everyone sounds like together, you know. But it's gonna be it's gonna be just incredible, man. Really looking forward to it. Really. Do you ever worried about being pigeonholed as a certain kind of bass player, someone who uses a lot of effects and can play really fast, plays like a five string, multi tracks oh, bass cool. parts? I mean, <laughs> do you ever think that's gonna turn people away from you at certain stages that's i absolutely no that comes into my head like uh i think that's also another reason why i took a break from the ken playing the ken smith because people started thinking of me as one thing even though even the project with dana i realized it was kind of geared more towards a fusion thing and it always just i mean that's just the kind of music i'm into like electronic music and you know, Alan Holzer, like jazz fusion kind of writing. And, uh, you know, more and more I started doing the Dana thing or like me and Dana's thing, like people started putting me into that place a little bit. And I, I, I didn't like that. <laughs> I didn't like it cause I was doing so many other things that I thought was, were really cool. You know, just, just only using the computer, you know, like just making tracks just for fun, like little beats and, uh, and that was kind of like my answer was getting the Callow Hill, you know, like I wanted to make a bass that kind of forced me to focus more on bass, you know, and like just play bass. And, and that was the whole intent from the very beginning was I told Tim like to make me, he was like, do you want to make it 16 millimeter? I was like, absolutely not. Like, let, let's just make this kind of, you know, big and hard to play, but it will force me to uh, slow down a little bit. <laughs> Because at the time, I was also feeling like my technique was getting a little bit too uh, muddy, or not, not muddy, but like too legato-y. Like it was kind of getting swallowed up when I was doing fast line. Like I had almost forgotten how to reapproach my technique to pluck every note. Because the Ken Smith is so, it's it's it gets pretty hard to pluck every single note on the right hand because the string spacing is so tight. And I don't like to use a ramp, so... It, it was, I think with a ramp, maybe it would be easier, but I kind of, I was just like, I've always been against ramps. I don't know. I don't know really why I've, I have played this bass came with a ramp originally. And I was like, I put it on and I went, nah, I was like, cause there is another thing. Like you see guys playing with ramps and you immediately go, Oh, you know, fusion like that, that, you know, you judge them. <laughs> sure. You know, you think you think that guy, he's like, oh, he cares about playing fast. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it, 
totally. Uh, so I, 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 again, it's like the visual thing of having a ramp. I was like scared of that too. Just being like, no, no, that, that, that definitely puts me in a certain kind of category. And I, I don't want it to, I don't want to make it obvious, you know, uh, that I, that I do, you know, like playing fast or whatever. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense, but so I built the Callow Hill on the opposite end of the spectrum. And then right before, uh, Tim passed, we were working on the Mach two of this Callow Hill, which was going to be basically this, but with, um, uh, 24 frets, bigger cutout. It's going to be 18 volt preamp. It's basically going to be the, the Ken Smith, but like in this form, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then he passed away and then, uh, it's now, I have no idea what's going on with it. I think it's still at his workshop, probably just sitting there. Man, it's, yeah, so sad, but it's, um, it's kind of, I mean, it was when Tim passed, it kind of made me look at everything that I was, it kind of reawakened me a little bit. I was kind of like, you know, I wanted to stop playing the Callow Hill for a little bit and kind of, because it was also kind of hard for me to like pick it up for a while. Uh, and so I just started playing the Ken Smith more and I was like, I started compartmentalizing, like, you know, putting things in its place. Like, all right, if I'm going to play fusion, I'm going to play the Ken Smith bass. But if I'm going to play my, if I want to do my own thing or like, uh, I want to be able to have a signature me thing, but still have, uh, while playing bass, you know, cause it's easy. Like it's not, maybe it's, maybe it's an ego thing, but like if we're just playing bass, right. We kind of slip into the background a little bit. And that's fine for me. Like, and I love doing that. But at the same time, I want to stand out. So it's kind of nice to have like this thing stand out, you know, while playing like one note. <laughs> you know, having having the uh, having the you know keeping things special even when uh, playing bass. You know, just keeping things in a special place uh, visually and just sonically, of course. But uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so what would be your advice be for for guys coming up now I mean the temptation for a lot of younger bass players is just to try and be as fast as possible and to be able to play right. as many notes as possible because that's what they see the guys doing on YouTube and stuff and it's kind of the new era of bass guitar heroes right right what there's not a lot be? of like yeah the, I have that's an interesting thing to like point out because there we are we're in the days of like the instagram basis where it's like these dudes post like uh just them playing or shredding like you know just a little bit of we're only given a glimpse of music and we're get we're giving we're giving we're seeing a lot of chops and all these these things but context is everything for me and if it doesn't have proper context then it's like what's the point you know what's and, and then that's another thing is like when you go here it's like this, you know, these Instagram bases, they don't have any of their own music. They're, they're just creating licks and, and you see, and it's like, no, 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 focus on, you know, putting it in context, giving, you know, writing music to it. And that's been my thing from, I think, I mean, as a, I think it all changed like a couple of years, like, well, it was when I was at Berkeley was putting context to everything. It's like, like, uh, again, making it more compositional. Like, even the fast stuff has, has to have its place in the music, you know? So, like, writing my own music to help my own playing, like, to showcase my strong points. Uh, one of my strong points being is I know how to interchange major chords or, like, Lydian chords. Uh, I can just kind of 
intervallically interchange those up in my head. And so I just started writing music that only had major chords in them. You know, like uh, my tune Sweatin' has only major chords. Or at least for the A section, for the solo section. And I wrote that with the intent of just having myself practice over major chords, right? Like creating like a exercise for myself. That exercise ended up being music, though. So it's like, awesome, great, let me just turn this into a tune, you know? And I feel like that's what needs to be valued again is music. These guys should be creating their own music, creating their own, uh, I don't know, pushing themselves, you know? And I'm not saying that, well, maybe this is, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be saying, like, what people should or should not be doing, though. That's another thing. It's, it's, it's me judging what's going on in the world. It's me, it's me growing older, I guess. Sure. <laughs> it's, me growing, it's me growing older and being like, Oh, all these young kids, you know, like they're not given context. There, it's like, oh, shit! Like I'm now, <laughs> I'm now like that. That that now I see. Now I see when like, you know, the old the elders they complain about. Oh, dubstep isn't music. <laughs> like you know, all these all these things that were like thrown around for like a long time. Uh, and it's like, uh, you know, and I'm always like, oh man, you know, lighten up, man. It's like now I'm kind of putting my own spin on it where I'm just, it's the technology, it's the technological thing, you know, the new apps, new things that, you know, we want to be able to, it's not really about creating music, it's about creating a visual and just playing licks and like all these things. So there's got to be a balance that hopefully people will realize and and achieve, you know, just create, just create music, (laughs) just create music. (laughs) That's that's the thing. Awesome, man. Well, before we sign off, just give us a heads sure. up. Um, where can we check out some of your music and where can we keep track of, of what you're up to? Uh, let's see here. Well, all my music is on... If you have Spotify, it's up on Spotify. It's up on Apple Music. I have a Bandcamp page. Uh, and if you just search Evan Marion, uh, even for the Emar stuff, it will pop up. Uh, and, it, you know... Yeah, the three big ones are Spotify, Apple Music, and Bandcamp. Those are my favorite. Uh, and if you want to buy it, sure, iTunes. <laughs> Do people buy music? I, I feel like streaming is such a cool, cooler thing, you know, because uh, I stream everything. I mean, I'm pretty much completely digital. I don't have CDs, you know. I don't really have these, uh, I don't know, physical things like vinyl or anything like that. I want to, and people have requested them, but it's financially just kind of, you know, not totally feasible. So in the sure. digital realm, you know, like Spotify, Apple Music, Bandcamp, um, my website, evanmarion.com, that's kind of a home base for, if you want to check out my past, like kind of like a like a collective history on my <laughs> entire uh, musical career so far is up on Evan Marion. Uh, videos with Dana, along with like all the new EMAR stuff. Um, and really just, I mean, the keep an eye out for the Scott's bass lessons thing. I'm really pumped on that. That just turned out so great. And I talk a lot about Alan's music, of course. And that was before I even uh, got the gig. I'm talking about Alan's music. I'm going over letters of marquee and like, you know, it's uh, (laughs) doing stuff like that. Performances. I don't know. Just keep an eye out on Scott's bass lessons for announcements on everything. And uh, yeah, uh, pretty much all my YouTube channel, just, my name, Evan Marion. All right, man. Yeah, we'll find you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, just online. I'm in the the ether, the internet's ether, you know. But uh, yeah, no, this has been lovely, Nick. Evan, thanks so much, man. And um, I hope it all goes really well with Alan. It's going to be such a cool run of shows. It's it's um, it's, it's a, sh- a short but cool run, and um, I'm looking forward to being in Los Angeles for a couple weeks too. Seeing uh, uh, my friend Steve Jenkins just moved out there, right? And I'm looking forward to hanging with him and getting to know all the cool coffee spots, you know. Yeah, burritos, tacos, that whole thing. <laughs> Love it. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Yeah, of course. Nick, Take thank you easy. for having me. Uh, my yeah, pleasure. Dude. We'll thank catch you again soon. All right, man. All right. Thank you, man. Thanks, Evan.